welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Hi, everyone. I'm Lori LeBay, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we are about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to raise everyone's voice, big and small, around the world to add value to your dementia journey. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I always like to do a little bit of housekeeping, so I'm going to do some shout outs for you. One is to Arthur's Senior Care. I can't thank them enough. They sponsor Arthur's Memory Cafe, which we do the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month. We are still doing that virtually, and anybody around the world is welcome to join us. Also to uh, Brookdale North Oaks here in Minnesota, we do a Caregiver Connect meeting in person the last Wednesday of each month from 10 to 11 a.m. at the Shoreview Community Center. And I would love for you to partake in either of those or both of those. Um, just reach out to me at radio at alzheimerspeaks.com. And then, of course, I would be amiss if I didn't mention Dementia Map, our global resource directory, which keeps growing each and every day. So please go to DementiaMap.com to find out more information. And it is free. You don't have to set up an account. So don't worry about any of those types of things. And then if you have a service product or tool you would like entered in there, again, reach out to me. I'd be glad to give you a tour on how you can set that up. We have about 150 different categories and uh, we're always looking for new content. Thank you so much for all of you who have visited so far. And last, I want to mention an opportunity where you can join Alzheimer's disease research in just minutes from your home. It's called Picnic Health. So just go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks and sign up and you'll actually receive $25 just for doing that. Picnic Health collects and digitizes all of your medical records into one online account. And then you can consent to share anonymized data of your records um, with medical researchers. And by examining this real world data in your medical records, researchers can find out a lot of information that they can't find out in clinical trials. And there's a lot of important information in each person's unique health journey. So feel free to share your journey. And again, if you are caring for someone with Alzheimer's, you can sign up on their behalf and manage their medical records in a Picnic Health account as well. Learn more at picnichealth.com forward slash speaks and get that $25 when you sign up. So we are going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker and we will be right back. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle? to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. Well, thanks for coming back. Um, we're going to have a really interesting conversation about slowing down and yet still 
moving forward and not losing losing your pace. And we are so lucky to have Jonas Freud with us. And he is with Mind Kicker and he has a martial arts background. And today he's going to talk about, you know, how we must dare to slow down without losing speed. And he uses um, unique holistic concepts to do that. This is really important in the world we're living with because my gosh, things are moving awfully fast and seem a little bit out of control for so many people I hear so often. Another little tidbit about Jonas that you want to know is that he cared for his father with dementia and he also works with leadership groups in coaching as well as speaking and teaching sustainable leadership on how to improve your life and your work by combining Western technology and Eastern wisdom. So I know this is going to be a fascinating conversation. He is very unique in his field and he's active all around the world. He's helped thousands of people maximize their potential by using digital analysis, reflections of emotions, thoughts, and behaviors using mental training techniques. Among other things um, of interest, he has worked with monks in Japan, learning how to change people's subconscious patterns and create new and better strategies for life. So please help me welcome Jonas. So Jonas, I am so excited to have you with us today. So thank you so much for coordinating this. I know with time zones and stuff, it can be a little crazy. You're over in Sweden. It's morning here, and I know it's beginning of evening there. Let's start out with with asking, you know, have you been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends? Yes, I have. Um, My dad had dementia the last five years of his life. So that's where I was personal touched and uh, became a, like a caregiver for my dad. So you definitely had firsthand experience through this whole whole uh, journey. I, I want to have you tell people a little bit about your background with your physical and mental training. You have learned to kind of mix the Eastern wisdom with, with Western knowledge as well. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, now, I mean, I grew up in Sweden and uh, I was uh, like adopted to Sweden when I was one year old because my parents in Sweden, they couldn't get any kids by their own. So with the third miscarriage, uh, my mom got a tip from a doctor in Sweden about meditation and um, she, she wanted to try it. And when she started to meditate, she had told me about uh, the story that she got the insight that she supposed to adopt a, a child from anywhere. But when she was meditating, she was like the Eastern was more natural, she thought. So she adopted me and uh, my dad uh, welcomed me uh, like 47 years ago to Sweden. And they started to teach me meditation when I was very young. I don't remember when we started, but they told me later. But my first memory is like when I was six years old. I was supposed to go out and play with my friends who was only Swedes, blonde hair, and kids around the neighborhood. So uh, when I opened my door and they saw me, they just, the oldest guy in the, the gang, he shouted like, damn, what ugly you are. And the other kid, he also um, respond as immediately in the group, like Chinese, go home. And these two guys, they were a little bit older, like 10, 12 years old. But when I heard that, I just felt grounded. And I told the first guy, yeah, that's your opinion. But I know that I'm loving and caring person. And... The other guy, I said, yeah, you maybe think I'm from China, but I'm from South Korea. So that was my start of a journey about like be grounded and uh, within the 
security about who I am. So I grew up, I went to school. And uh, my background in the school is like, I was too creative and too playful for the teachers. So they put me outside the classroom instead of inside. Uh, but nowadays when I grow up and work with creativity, so I still have use for that I feel always creativity and um, secure about who I am. So that's my story about how I came into the martial art. It was like I was a very energetic kid in the teenager time. And the martial art club opened up in my hometown, a small one. And that led into the Eastern wisdom within martial arts. But the trainer there, he was more also more into the like the philosophy about the way of thinking, the way of acting, and the respect and discipline and so on. So it became like a lifestyle for me. And I found out like martial art have helped me very much in my life, I mean daily life, in my work life, in my private life. So I've been carrying around the martial art, the way of living. So that's my short story about who I am. Wow. Well, kudos to your folks for getting you that centered at that young of age, coming against bullies. I mean, that's unbelievable. And how you turn that situation around and someone else spoke up, felt comfortable to, to stand in their, their space as well. Why don't you tell us about your experience in, in, in general living as, as you've grown, as well as your life and your schooling, because if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, you did schooling around the world. Yeah, I was uh, traveling around the world uh, during five years and uh, visit like countries, culture, uh, both the living culture, but also like food culture and the way of living in the different uh, part of the world. Uh, so I've been traveling around two times around the world and uh, visited like 50 countries. So I've always been curious about like how they do it and why they do it and, and so on. So I learned how they're living in the different part of the world, uh, depending on what the possibilities are for them. But one major memory that I have is like when I was in Japan and um, I was visiting a, a small island named Okinawa and they taught me and showed me like how the way of their lifestyle was like after a good night's sleep they put on the clothes to to harvest what they have been putting out or they putting out the new to harvest later. So they did the physical work daily. And then they prepared the dinner and uh, they told me, hey, no too full. So they already told me like, we're not eating their full. So we only stay like, and that's been science by like 80%, I believe I read like an article about it, but they told me like, don't eat too much. And that's what we do in Western world. And then if you have any problems, you talk about it before you go to good night's sleeps. And so it was like a very profound way of living for me. So I did it three months. And uh, it was really good insights that uh, the body and the mind was really feeling good in that four parts. And uh, eventually I ended up as well in Japan with uh, the Japanese monks, the Sun monks. And they also told me without tell, uh, telling me because it was a silent uh, monastery. So they told me by body language that for this one is um, that I remember it was like every morning, the first three mornings, I was very tired. And they told me, this was in 1995, I, they told me that I'm sleeping and breathing with my mouth 
during the night. That's why I'm tired. So they taped my mouth and let me sleep with taped mouth. So I learned how to breathe through my nose. And that made me more energized uh, because they knew it. Like um, the air you uh, breathe in during uh, night sleep with your mouth is not good for your body. I don't really know the English word, but I hope you understand. So I got so many like biohacks in, in my traveling. So that's I'm really grateful for today. The breathing through the mouth. I know as I've gotten older, I think I tend to do that and I don't sleep as well. I think a lot of different things from just drying out the throat and, and so forth, probably an irritant, but that's interesting. I don't know if I'll tape my mouth shut tonight, but I'll be more conscious about keeping my mouth closed when I sleep and see what happens there. Let's talk more about your journey with your with your father. What was it like for you to hear of his diagnosis or did you see symptoms prior to even bringing him in to getting diagnosed? Yeah, about my dad, about the dementia, it was like I, I could see uh, um, the signals about with dementia he like acting uh, differently and he like yeah about like the memory so I was like okay here in Sweden you grow up when you get old your memory get worse but it was not uh, something else than just memory so I I I recognized the signals uh, but I couldn't uh, tell what it was but after a while, I understood maybe it's some kind of disease. And I was like, yeah, hearing uh, with my friends who is like within the medical world. And they told me like, yeah, it might be like Alzheimer's dementia. Um, maybe it's getting old and uh, the memory is just bad. So I was like curious about because I haven't heard about like dementia and Alzheimer's and no one in my relatives had it. Uh, I haven't experienced something. So I was study looking for like how could I learn more about dementia and Alzheimer's. So I read a lot of things. Uh, I talked to a friend who was science about it and about friend who was working in the elderly care and so on so so they told me and uh, then I understood how that disease worked and I could see the similarity or like uh, the thing is like yeah it might be dementia but this is like two two years before he was diagnosed with dementia and that time he was uh, still at home in the house together with my mom and uh, she was fr- getting frustrated every time I met her and she called me up and like now he forgot to turn off the oven and so on and she was having a disease as well but just physical so it was very physical exhausted for her so so that was um my journey about uh, to find out find out uh, about my dad and the last five years uh, after two years at home he couldn't stay at home so we needed to put him on a, a caregiving home so that was my journey about to make the best thing that I could as living apart from him and very far away uh, and my mom couldn't visit him as often she wanted because uh, of uh, logistic problems and uh, physical problems. And um, it was a challenge. Uh, but um, every time I met him, I built up like a method and the way of like prepare me myself to meet him because I could like know that he is not. Um, in that room in his mind when I visit him sometimes. So then I just read more about it. I met people who had their own experience and I just suck it in like curious person I am and try to 
find out, okay, how could I give life quality to my dad as a son? And uh, also I was observing like the care home, how they did. And it was like not really nice uh, experience to see the care homes, just like it's another product in the home. And um, so I started to do my training with my dad with everything I learned and read about. So I like mapping my dad's life and uh, come to the conclusion within the science uh, that he loved music. He was dancing uh, when he was young every weekend. So I knew like, okay, music he loves. And then he was uh, really good in soccer playing. So training and physical training. And he was talking about that very much. So then I realized like he needs physical training as well because they didn't give him. So everything on that one, it was like a puzzle that I found out that I wanted to yeah, make okay. it best to my father. So Okay, so um, can you share with us how you prepared yourself mentally to engage with your dad did you have a a pattern of things that you did before you went and saw him yeah i mean uh, in the beginning like uh, the first year when he still was at home but i understood like okay it might be dementia or it might be memory but i will secure or make it sure that he really knows that I love him and really knows that I have been telling him like everything I wanted so I could be like safe as well uh, for showing it. Uh, hopefully I have been showing it all, all my all my life. But, you know, that was the preparing the first thing. I knew that I had told him and he had um, received all my love that I wanted to like share. And when he moved into the care home, uh, my preparation was like mentally, it was like, and emotionally, I prepared like, he might not recognize my, me this time. How am I supposed to accept it? And how am I supposed to act on that? And for me, it was like, okay, if he don't recognize me at right away, as like the natural um, response, it's fine for me. I accept that. So that was my main preparation about that. And uh, then I start to do more preparation, like, okay, could I prepare myself to, to involve him more when I'm um, visiting him? And that's where the science came in to like, okay, the music he loves. What happened if I put on the music he loves when I visit him? Or if I show the picture that he really remember really much about it. So that was um, a really turnover for me when he was like hearing the music. I could like tell his body language. He was like, after a few minutes, like he was uh, released, he was uh, more more conscious about where he was there because he he had the music in the room. So, so some of that kind of tips I, I trained uh, trained with my dad. You know, I like you know when you had said you mapped his life, and and at first I wasn't sure where you were going with that because people use that term in different ways. But bottom line, it was mapping it out of what brought him joy, what what kept him engaged. And, you know, when you mentioned the music, my mom loved music, too, and she would just light up. I mean, she would be kind of discombobbled and disconnected. But that music, it just I, I mean, literally your head would cock. And she would be, you know, clapping to the music, her toes and, and hands and her whole body would go. I mean, one time she did a shimmy. I didn't even know she could move like that. And we all just laughed. It was like, oh my gosh, that's been hiding all these times. But it it was it's like an awakening within. And I and I understand when you're talking about and some people who haven't experienced might not get this, but 
there becomes this connection with who's ever around them in that moment, enjoying the music. I mean, you, you like it's you can't deny it. It just it's magical. And then you also talked about dealing with him when he de- might not recognize you. And that is a thing that I think so many people don't consciously think about because it's so painful. Uh, I, I know my my older brother had a horrible time with that. How could she not know me? I've been her kid for 50 years, you know, and he was just offended by that concept and, and not, you know, like she's doing it purposely. And it has nothing to do with trying to make someone else feel bad. It's just the connections aren't always there. But I, I wanted to ask you this, because even when my mom couldn't state my name, for example, my mom would call me her mom and I would come to the nursing home and she'd be with her friends and she'd say, and this is my mother and she takes such good care of me. And my older brother was with me and he was like, what is she talking about? You don't even look like grandma. Aren't you mad? Aren't you angry? And, and I would say, no, I said, Mark, you're forgetting mom didn't have a good relationship with her mom at all. Because her, my mom's dad had a massive heart attack when she was 15. And her grandma had, a, or her mother had a nervous breakdown. And she took off and she traveled the world and left my mom home alone at 15. Which you couldn't get by with, you know, in these days. So my mom had a lot of abandonment issues and, and um, wasn't close with her mom. And like I told my brother, I said, somehow that's healed for her. And she loves her mom again. And I am honored to be part of that because it's all, it's all about the love. And as long as she feels safe and happy with me, she doesn't have to say my name. It's kind of like a small child might not know how to say your name or might not say it correctly, but if they want to play with you, they feel comfortable being close to you. What's wrong with that? Why do we have to push the envelope to make somebody state a name when we communicate on so many other different levels and we ignore them. I I just, I don't, some days I don't understand how all of that can be ignored. And yet I think it's a real common factor that if you can't speak it, it, it's, you know, then it's not, it's not valued. Have you run into that? Oh yes. Oh yes. Um, Thanks for bringing it up because that's one of my keys about the way of life. It's about like the programming we're going through as a child. And um, what I'm, what I found out about the way when I was like, now, why would I like change the world? And, um, uh, I tried like to find the translation about like how I speak in Swedish, but it's like when you change the way you are, you change the world. And uh, what I want to say about that is like when I meet people who has issues, is it's like like personal problems or anything? But for example, it's like but secure about the name, it's like, I've been trying, uh, like I told you, I have experience to live in the monastery without telling the names. I don't need, because the body language tells me that my brothers loves me as I am. And that's what I understood when my dad, when I met my dad and he lost his like, uh, speech as well because he was like lower and lower I couldn't hear sometimes but his body language told me and when I touched him I could feel like he touched me back with just a movement to press in my hand and that's what a signal that I teach other people to understand what does that signal means not the behavior because behavior is only a result of the signals that they are telling me so about that thing i want to like mind hack people like is it really your truth your own truth about the name or your 
your title in work life and get like unemployed by losing the identity because their identity is the title. I am the CEO, I am the HR boss, I am the leader. So they're living by the titles. And when I talk to kids, it's the same thing. Why are you afraid of spiders for like a teenager? And they say, I don't know, but I am. Okay. And why are you afraid of spiders? I ask them many times. And finally, they said like, yeah, it's because I heard it when I was very young from my mom. Ah, so you've been living through your mom's feelings all your life. Yeah. So are you afraid of spiders? No, I'm curious. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's the thing I see how I want to change the people I meet. It's like the way they see the life. I mean, I grow up, everybody is preparing about the newborn but nobody preparing for the death. And then it's like, why not prepare as much for the death as the newborn? Because we know that both things gonna happen, newborn and death. So that's the same thing with the disease. It's like, I'm not afraid of getting dementia um, or any other disease. I'm afraid of the people who are gonna take care of me. And that's like, my main goal, like, okay, if I could teach or train people to just think differently, do differently, feel differently, then it's going to be like maybe um, like a better situation for everybody. Oh, I, I totally agree. And I like when you brought up, you know, the newborn and the death. Because the newborn, like you said, we get all excited. We've we've never met this person before, but there's all this excitement. Then we live a full life, you know, or as long as this person's been around. We have we have all of this contact, all of these memories, and then we just kind of want to ignore it and shove them out the door and get it over with and not think about it. And to me, that's such a dishonor to the person. You know, we really need to rally around and celebrate what this person gave us and how they enriched our lives and, and others and, and not be fearful of the talk. My mom was really big on death and dying. And so um, she would always bring us to, to funerals and wakes when we were really little. And she would actually get scolded by her friends for doing that. And my mom would say, they're around when they come in, they should be around when they go out. They they need to understand this whole cycle of life. And so when my mom actually passed, and for those of you that don't know, my mom lived with dementia for 30 years. In the end, she started coming to me in dreams. And she actually told me, you're not going to be here when I die. And I was all offended because I'm always that person for transition And I'm like, what do you mean? And she just said to me very, very boldly, she said, if you're here, the rest of them won't experience death because you'll just take care of it. And they, they'll just stand back and watch. She said, I want them involved. And she said, I also want to know that you're going to continue your work. So when my mom was actively dying, I had two keynotes out of state and I had to leave. And Everyone in my family thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I wasn't at her bedside. And yet I was with her totally on a spiritual level. I mean, we were connected so closely and, you know, it was, it was an amazing trip. And yet I still got to experience everything through video conferencing and I could guide my family on what to do, but not be physically doing it so that they all got to participate, but that was, that was really important to my mom. You know, that was like one of her last teaching moments. And, you know, it was quite, quite beautiful and quite amazing for me to see on a spiritual level, how she orchestrated everything. And I really, truly believe she, she orchestrated everything. I mean, even with my trip on who sat um, next to me on the plane and 
who was with me every step, all these different people were like, they were like handpicked to make my experience comfortable and joyful and, and not anxiety filled, which easily could have been the case. But like you, I think, um, I think of the moment when you were in the door and the, you know, the bullies made the comments to you, you were really grounded. I think I was really grounded too in going, I am honoring my mom's last wish. And there can be no wrong in that. And so that made me feel, you know, extremely comfortable and confident with that. But yeah, the messaging around death and dying has to change. I mean, it's, it it really, we've got to take this scary out because to me, I think it's one of the most beautiful moments you can participate in. It's, it's right up there with the birth of a child. Um, I, I, I can't say one outweighs the other, honestly, to me. And, and I don't know if that sounds goofy to you, but they're, they both can be very beautiful, beautiful experiences. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm totally agree on that one. Like it's, it's similarity for me. I mean, on my funeral uh, with my like grandma, grandpa, and my friends, um, parents and so on I mean I feel the power every funeral I've been onto but same as you saying to me is like I I don't need to be very physically that's why I've been developing my emotional training as well and yeah some people says it uh, spiritual but for me it's all energy and what you put the label again it doesn't matter for me but if you are there in your heart um, mind soul um, doesn't matter for me so for me as well like because i i already knew that the possibility that i will be at my mom's or dad's bed um, when they are dying is very small because I will not manage to get in the car and go to the hospital or, or even at home. So I already prepared myself, like like you said, like I will be there when it's happening emotionally, uh, physically, if I can, but mentally I am already there. So I'm very happy to hear that more people could actually prepare and train and develop their um, feelings and that's what I understood like so many kids are living through their parents or the closest people around them by their feelings and will not discover or uh, experience their own feelings and even the adult that I coaching like they are start crying when I like go deep profound like from the beginning of the childhood and they're telling me like yeah I remember now when I was in the sandbox and playing and I got like a plastic uh, tractor in my head and I was about to start crying because it hurt but I had a voice who told me stop crying it doesn't hurt go play play on and then he realized, like 57 years old, it was my mom's feelings that I've been carrying around all my life. And all my employees think I'm really tough and hard. So after that coaching session, he went out to talk to his employees and uh, he started to cry. And the employee was like um, applauding, applauding him like, wow. We thought you were really hard and no feelings, but here you are. So he also understood like the way of leadership. You need to be wonderful, uh, one, uh, vulnerable. Yeah. So I, I came to that like if people or especially within dementia, because that's something that I can't control by myself because it was my dad who was controlling that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I could control everything else. Like I told you, like I prepare, I can uh, just make it the best of 
put on some music um, and uh, do the physical training as well because it was a really good impact when I trained like martial art with him uh, even he was in the wheelchair um, I could uh, train and he was exercising and you could feel his pulse you could feel his heart beat like pumping up and that was also a great impact uh, on his life quality well yeah being engaged I, I you know I think people kind of take that for granted or you know don't even don't understand how powerful that is to to feel that you can uh, participate and that you can achieve at you know at any stage of life you there's there's all these levels of connection for me going through the disease journey with my mom I found that there were multiple levels of unconditional love I didn't know even existed before and and that I think increased my spirituality or energy connection, whatever you want to call it. But it was incredible. I mean, you can't even put it into words. You know, that's about the best I can summarize it. But it, it really was not of this realm of normal communication. Yeah. And I actually now I remember one, um, one thing when I visit my dad one time. He wasn't speaking. He wasn't showing any like uh, body language or anything. So I understood like, okay, today is going to go really slow. Mm -hmm. So I was just in the room. He was living like an apartment room. Mm -hmm. So I was just sitting in the room, not talking to him. Uh, yeah, I was watching him or like that, but I just was sitting on his um, bed. And he was sitting in his wheelchair. Mm -hmm. He was looking out uh, the window and through the window, it was like a flower in the window. Mm -hmm. And after like 45 minutes, like, because I reckon like it's very long time, quiet and so on. But like 45 minutes later, he just told me very clear, like he normally not speaking to mm -hmm. me clear. Hey, Jonas, can you move that flower a little bit to the right? Uh -huh. it's in the way it's in the way in my window he said uh -huh. and I was like wow <laughs> yeah of course mm -hmm. so I helped him and then he went back like totally quiet and didn't uh, communi communicate anything with the body language or speech or anything so I was like that was like a, a new experience for me so I was there like two hours uh -huh. I did that just sitting down and I had to move that flower once. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I believe that I, because I felt like it was there still the time within the, his energy and like that. So that's what I just wanted to tell. Oh, that's neat. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. I wanted to ask in terms of your coaching and stuff, can, can people sign up with you to, to be coached on their dementia journey? Are you formally doing that? Yeah, I do, but I do that nowadays, um, one-on-one and, one, and, mm -hmm. and to build up, build up the families. Mm -hmm. So I start maybe with a, like a son or daughter who got the parents Mm -hmm. involved so I start there as my own journey but my goal on that journey is to involve the care homes and um, the, the caregivers the professionals also to understand how how you can use the creativity and the insights and learn how to read and understand the signals because my dad uh, he was like so many times just acting on his behavior and they like didn't want to understand they didn't have the time to understand or like that but then i i introduced them why he did some of the behavior when i'm not there so that's what i, I try to do now to share my knowledge my experience to people who is in, involved within dementia 
uh, everything from like the emotional training and the mental training and how you could prepare yourself for every visit if it's every day or it's once a week or once a month or once a year but also like the communication how you can speak without speaking so mm-hmm. so, so, so I, I train people uh, who hire me so one-on-one private and I do the organization because I need and I think like I said accelerate this journey because I'm not afraid to get with dementia but I'm afraid of the people who are going to take care of me so and I think if we can if we can remove that fear because I think you're not alone um, there's been so much stigma put on that and again people believe what they hear and it becomes their reality and they're really you know not thinking for themselves which you talked about earlier so I think that that's very very important um, shift to be able to make I also think you know when you talked about working with the monks and you know it was a, it was a silent um retreat basically when you were there I I went to a silent retreat and it was only for 48 hours and at first I thought I can't do this I talk all the time hi I'm not gonna I loved it and it took me two weeks to settle back into being at home with all the noise because everything seems so loud and so crazy and I realized how much I loved that peace and quiet because, you know, when you have that peace and quiet, you also have that opportunity to be calm and it's much harder to be calm in a, in busyness. And I think that's one of the problems too with, with staff and families is if something's not going their way, everybody gets anxious and they just keep elevating one another. And there isn't that grounded person to just go, okay, let's break this down. Let's just look at the why. Why did this happen? Let's not blame. Let's not go there. This isn't a punishment. Let's just figure out how to make it go better next time and how to resolve this and and get everybody, not just the person with dementia, but get all of us calm again. And I think we're always looking at fixing them. And so much has to be done within us. And that is something that I think so many people don't want to tackle that inner, that inner personal work that I'm fine. What do you mean? I'm fine. (laughs) Do you find that with people too? They kind of push it away and go, no, I I just, I need that person fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Everything starts with yourself. Uh, When you fix yourself, like, uh, like everything, like from the mindset and uh, accept what you need to accept. And so when we do the reflection about it, um, like you said, uh, within the, the monastery, when it's silent, you get reflection automatically. And your, I, knew, I mean, our senses is also enhanced. I mean, when you're quiet, uh, your ear is hearing better. So many people uh, don't understand the power of silence, but also like many people is running away from what they are afraid of instead of running towards. And that's what I using my martial arts as a metaphor. Like if I'm going to uh, win the game or match about you, I need to, to go towards you, not away from you. And that's uh, the, the moment that I see when people not continue running away running towards the problem the challenge or themselves then they open up and so so i believe as you said um, we got a lot of things of training of but i mean eventually i think it's gonna be the tipping point about like we can train but i mean it needs to be from a young age during all life so i mean the school system has a lot of teaching the kids about life and death and yeah, everything I, in between i agree my um granddaughter well she's in first grade now but when she was in kindergarten uh i'll never forget we were bike riding and she she hopped off her bike 
And then she sat down and, you know, she started meditating. She closed her eyes and crossed her legs and just out of the blue, like three different times. And I said, well, what are you doing? She's like, I just need some quiet. And, you know, and she just meditated. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful thing that they're teaching. And it, it was a real peaceful ride. And I wasn't quite connected with why she needed the quiet, but I think it was just more, she wanted to connect with nature on a different level um, than pedaling through. She wanted to absorb it was, was my perception of it. And she wasn't old enough to be able to say it, but I just, I was so amazed and I was so appreciative that they were teaching that because that was something that was never taught to me at that age. And I think if we can, if we can get kids to understand that they can be in control of their environment and their thoughts, and to be able to calm themselves down, the world's going to look very, very different to them. And, um, and that's very exciting to me. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, I, I mean, that's what, what my parenthood is like about, like, I teach my own kids. I got two girls now who is like 11 and 13. I train them without they know that I'm trained them about how to reflect and how to feel the body, feel the emotions. And I just want them to understand that they own their own life. Then I can be a guide. Uh, they don't need to do my mistake or must take. Uh, mm -hmm. So I got to learn from it. But I could say like, for example, with my own kids, you know, here in Sweden, uh, again, maybe not correct translation again, but here in Sweden, we always had been telling everybody, kids, adults, have a good day. Mm -hmm. And I've been like, you can't have a good day. You need to do a good day or make it great mm -hmm. that I heard. So, so every morning when I drop off my kids to school, I said, uh, make it a great day. And when they're coming home from school, I'm always asking, how did you make your day? And they said, oh, I had, a, I had a good day. And I said, yeah, why did you have a good day? Why do you ask so many questions, Dad? Hey, I'm curious. I want to know. I want to understand. So then we said, no, I don't know why. Yeah, but you just told me it was good and uh -huh. i was like so nowadays they just reflecting without knowing it's like, like how did you make your day today ah oh, i made it great today because i'm really proud because i helped my classmate within Matt with a, a challenge and then it's like yeah then i check the boxes about like okay they could feel uh, proud they could help the people like the meaning so meaningful thing so they they check the boxes about how they could be like secure i mean so it's really fantastic to follow their journey as well yeah i i love that you are making them conscious of you know, and, and pushing them. And because I don't think we do that enough in our lives. And we just throw those answers out. Yeah, it was fine. It was a good day. Um, but no one re really is quantifying what makes it a good day. Or am I just saying that to get you off my back? And I have a, um, a saying when I when I use the word caregiver, which I don't use very often, but I call it the car e-giver. And the car stands for conscious awakening of relationships. And the e-giver is about the emotional giving. And to me, that is the key element to being a really a good care partner, care companion for somebody. It's really a, getting in that emotional zone of what do they like and, and what makes you feel good too as a person. And, and to me, that's, that's the zone. That's the sweet spot that is so often overlooked because we're so busy with our checklists of they you know, I have to do the wash and they have to go to the doctor and you're doing all these tasks. And I, I fell into that trap too, where again, those things made me feel like I was doing something for a disease I was told I couldn't do anything about. And yet when you take that conscious approach 
to, you know, really making someone's day and, and that reflects back on you as well. I mean, what a better way to take control of your day and take yeah. control of the disease yeah. um, and have much better outcomes than just a list that you've checked off with that. So, well, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a true believer that anything is possible. Can you give some people of, of maybe an example for you, maybe a couple of things that that you really want to focus on that you believe are are possible that maybe others others go, mm, I don't think so, but that are really strong and important to you? Yeah, no, I mean, just that I've been growing up within like nothing is impossible. Uh, I only telling the people like it's only undone. Um, so anything is possible because nothing is impossible, just undone. And what that I see, it's like the historically, everybody who said it's impossible to go to the space, yeah, it's done. And it was impossible to drive a car by fuel. Yeah, but it's done. So it's like everything will be done if we take us on the challenge or so on. But so so for that example, when I came into like, I met so many people, especially people like who are selling like, the people is impossible. Like I've been coaching people and in the municipality that I live in the social care system, like they telling the, the client is impossible. Yeah. He's been doing this for 20 years and yeah, let, let me meet him. And then I listened to him uh, five times. I was coaching him a little bit and then he went off like off the hook. He was uh, getting his job that he wanted. So it's like, because he got the, the stamp, it's impossible. Nobody cared to give him like the shot. And the same thing about the school system, all the elderly care as well. Like if we have uh, the professional that actually want to make something different, but they can't or they are not allowed. So... For example, it was like my dad, uh, again, for example, was like he was peeing in the corridor, in the flower, was standing in the corridor. And, you know, they said it's impossible to him to go to the toilet. So we put in the diaper instead on him. And then I said, yeah, but I know his history. He'd been working outside, outdoor all his life. So he's normally is allowed to pee outside in a tree or like that. And I told them, if you try to put the flower in the toilet, maybe he will go to the toilet by himself. And now we can't put the flower in the toilet. We are not allowed. We don't have money to buy it and so on, everything. But one young student who was uh, like heard me and she told me the next day I visited, I tried it, Jonas, and it works. So same again, like nothing is impossible. It's just undone. Yeah. Oops. I think part of it too is, I totally agree with it. it. Nothing's impossible. It's just undone. But I think we have to have the belief that we can change it. And I think so often we've been taught that it has to be this huge movement to make change. Everybody has to be on board. And I think it's really important that we teach people the power of one that they have. And I think we also have to honor creativity and allow like staff and individuals to be creative and think out, outside the box. If it's not working inside the box, then we got to think outside the box. And, and to me, that's a really simple concept. And I kind of go, okay, this is like a common sense thing why, why don't more people understand this? And it's because it's been such an ingrained belief that we've grown up with 
that our parents and their parents have believed. Not that many people have really gone deep to say, well, what do I really think? Mm. You know? Yeah, and, it, it, it's about the generation that you is uh, talking about. Because when I have uh, lectures or inspirational talk or mm-hmm. speech, I talk about the, the Christmas ham, uh, a story about but Lisa, four years old, asking her mom, why do, does we cut off the ends of the Christmas ham before we put it in the oven? And the mom, she said, no, I don't know. I haven't thought about it, but uh, hey, it was grandma who did it. So mm-hmm. I do the same thing. Ah, let's ask grandma. And we, they went to grandma and asked her, and she said the same thing. I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the grand, uh, old grandma, she, she just did it. And we're asking her, and then she said, yeah, it was just, I needed to cut off the ends of the Christmas ham to fit in the oven. Yeah, so it's like nobody questioned it. They're just doing it. And the same as you said, talking about the programming, it's like, yeah, it's my feeling. If I put on my feelings to my kids, yeah, then we know the result again. So that's why I really want my kids to have their own feelings, their own feelings that they can control, that they really own mm-hmm. as well. So that's what I see the challenge as well. Like nobody really reflects on why do we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's the question. Like I'm really asking a lot. It's like, why do you do what you do? And many people don't know because they haven't reflected, they haven't valued it, uh, and revalue it, rethought about it. So that's just like the way I want to. Like, can you feel new things? Like, can you rethink? Mm-hmm. Can you reset your programming? So I really try to teach people to, to be mind-breaking, like mind-kicking. Like when I have a masterclass sometimes, I, I just holding um, up one thing and I telling the group like, hey, do you know what this fork is for? And everybody says, Jonas, it's not a fork. It's a cup. Yeah but you didn't listen to me. Do you know what this fork is for? So eventually they're like, ah, now they got how to reset it. Because mm-hmm. if you don't know it, I can say anything what this is. This is uh, my Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I want to like train the, the mind, like the the. the Left side is the most people into. I'm more into the right side. So, yep, that right or wrong side. You know, there's yeah. gotta, be, gotta be an answer, and it's gotta be mine. Type deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. We really, we really have to have to get away from that and um, and learn from others. Just learn to communicate and bring joy and solace. And I think what a beautiful gift, you know, uh, doing a coaching package with you would be for family and or for a community, you know, to, to have, let them open up and see things in a different light and, and help them build skills to deal with things differently. I mean, I, I really can't think of a, a, a better package to be gifted with, you know, than something like that. Cause it's like you said earlier, it's something that people can utilize throughout their life. It's not just the dementia journey, but it'll change your whole world and how you look at it, how you react to it, um, and how you engage with it. So yeah. thank you. I don't know. Yeah, just a short one. I know uh, it's time now, but I don't know in the States, but here in Sweden, when my father got the, the disease, the dementia, I got mm-hmm. the invite letter to, me, to go to a meeting Mm-hmm. to information about dementia and you know they just talk and everybody was sitting nobody understood anything so that's what like you said that's my intention now to to help the municipality to have that package go to that place 
to get the methods, the techniques to try. Can I change my feelings? Can I like that? What we've been talking to mm-hmm. that? What I think the municipality around the world needs to have as the services for the citizens, and that's gonna go grow uh, bigger. That was the last thing I was thinking about our conversation today. Like, you need it because when we get got to be parents, we have four uh, groups to meeting and so on. So, well, and I think there's a big difference between going to a meeting and being talked at and being invited into a comfortable conversation that's not just one-sided, where you're not just talking at, but you want to hear their stories and. Because all of that embetters everybody who participates. And then it brings it down to ground level. But people go, oh, yeah, that, something like that happened to me, too. I didn't know that anyone else was going through that. And, and it develops that compassion and that empathy. And that it reduces that, that feeling alone. And that alone, I, I think, makes such a huge, huge difference. So people can contact you by going to your LinkedIn page. Um, or your website, Mind Kicker, and we'll put those both up um, so people can see those as well. And your your website is in Sweden, but if you go to Chrome and you go into the search bar where the URL is, you can click on a little icon to change uh, it into whatever preferred language you have. So, um, and that's very, very easy to do. But um, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and uh, it's so needed. And I really appreciate your time today, Jonas. Thank you. For our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this show. Please like, click, and share. Uh, like, like I always say, don't keep these nuggets to yourself. Share them. That's why we're here. Until next time, we'll see you later. Bye now.